And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Since his arrival in Chicago in 2014, Cardinal Blaise Supich has been a refreshing presence in the community. Appointed by Pope Francis, he very much shares a style and approach uh, with the Pope, uh, including an outspokenness on issues like uh, gun violence, immigration, on health care and climate change, and the need for civil discourse in our politics. This has made the Cardinal a target within the Church of those who are unhappy uh, with the progressive direction in which the Pope is leading. But he seemed undaunted when I sat down with him in the days before Christmas in Chicago. Your Eminence, so good to to see you, especially in this busy season. Thank Happy you. holidays to you. Thanks, David. I appreciate you uh, inviting me to be a part of this, and I uh, really had a uh, very enjoyable time down at the University of Chicago. What a great discussion you had there with E.J. Right. Tian. Uh, and I learned some things about you, and I've learned more uh, since. And I wanted to – you know, when you got named uh, as the uh, archbishop here, uh, this is a very ethnic city. And yet I'm sure a lot of people wondered about the name Blaise Supich. Uh, tell me about that and, and, and your – your background? Well, in fact, it's uh, a Croatian uh, heritage, uh, Supic is, uh, and all four of my grandparents uh, immigrated to the United States, uh, some before and some right after World War I, and uh, settled in Omaha because of the um, unskilled labor that was available through the meatpacking uh, industry. Uh, and uh, so uh, they all came independently and met uh, over uh, in a little uh, hamlet there in South Omaha, uh, which became St. Peter and Paul Parish. My grandparents were founders of that parish, which just celebrated a hundredth anniversary this year. Uh, and, and your uh, grandfather went and solicited donations he to did, build yes. that church. He did. He did. He uh, he was uh, went door to door and uh, was a young man when he came, probably about sixteen, seventeen years old. Uh, he was born in eighteen eighty seven on the feast of Saint Blaise, which is February the third. Uh, my father was named Blaze, and so I got the name uh, in, in a very humorous way because having been born on the Feast of St. Joseph, March 19, all of my uh, grandmothers particularly were clamoring that I be named Joseph. Uh, but my dad had a brother named Joseph, and that week he was mad at him. <laughs> so he said, I am not going to name him after my brother. I'll name him after me. So that's how I got the name, in spite of my uncle, literally. <laughs> and St. Blaise, we should point out, is the uh, patron saint of uh, Dubrovnik. Right, so. exactly. And uh, there's a blessing of throats. Uh, I was just in Dubrovnik uh, in 2016 for the uh, the uh, 17th, 100th anniversary of his uh, of his uh, martyrdom, and uh, they they asked me to come in and preach at the at the at the mass there in Dubrovnik, and it was uh, was very enjoyable. Uh, very uh, uh, there was a sense there of uh, the whole community coming together in that city. And you you as you mentioned, your family were uh, laborers. You you grew up in a community that was called Goose Hollow. Why why was it called Goose Hollow? Because that's uh, there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of poultry and uh, geese in that area where. Uh, they uh, they had a lot of people growing uh, vegetables in their yard and uh, keeping poultry. We had uh, ducks and geese uh, when I was a kid, and I think it was because of the uh, the fact that there were uh, there were there was that kind of uh, 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 domestic uh, uh, raising of, of poultry in the area. And and it was a way to feed a large family. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. All everybody had large families. Uh, in the in the neighborhood, I don't think there was a family that had less than six kids. And you were one of nine. I was. I was. A th- I'm the third of nine. Yes. Uh-huh. And and your dad uh, w- uh, was had had several different jobs when you were growing up to support that family. Yes. Um, when he came back, he came back uh, from the Navy in World War II uh, at at the end of the war, 1945, and then uh, right away in in February of 46, he and my mother got married. And uh, he started out uh, doing all sorts of odd jobs, uh, putting in furnaces and so on. Then he uh, took the civil service exam to be a postal carrier and passed that. But he knew that that wasn't enough. And so he'd get up at uh, 4.30 in the morning, 
uh, go off and uh, carry his uh, route, uh, come back, uh, have lunch with my mother, and then come up to the school where we were. And uh, he, he was a part-time janitor. We helped him, the three boys, the three oldest boys. We'd come home and have supper, and then he'd go out and bartend in the evening. So it was one of those things in which uh, he knew he had to put uh, food on the table and um, and uh, we had uh, we thought it was a normal family that everybody worked like that. How much did these experiences first of all the the immigrant experience of your family and then the sort of and the the, the working class experience of your family how much does that inform your worldview? Well, I think it has shaped it uh, in a very demonstrative way. Uh, I think, first of all, uh, I, I've always valued immigrants because we learned a lot in the neighborhood. Uh, everybody spoke a different language. Uh, and yet there was not only a tolerance but uh, a kind of enjoyment of each other's customs and, and patterns of behavior. Uh, so we, we found uh, immigration and the diversity that it brought as enriching, not as threatening. I think the other, in terms of uh, the way I looked at my parents, is uh, not to be afraid of hard work. Uh, hard work is a good thing. Uh, when people work hard and work together, and then get a lot done. But working together is a part of it, too. So um, we, we just uh, grew up in that atmosphere. It was the air that we w- would breathe every day. Uh, that um, you everybody did their part and everybody had a place at the table. Uh, you had both rights and responsibilities that coincided. And on the issue of, of immigration, you've been outspoken on that issue. Why do you think that immigration has taken such a, a dark turn in terms of the national uh, debate? Uh, there's always been a nativist stream uh, in the um, strain in the in the political discourse of our of our country. Uh, we we saw that in the um, uh, in the 18th and 19th century. So a lot of that at times was even uh, aimed at uh, religious groups, whether they're Jews or Catholic. So did you feel it when you were? When uh, you were no, here? I didn't because uh, <laughs> really uh, we we always joked that in South Omaha it was so Catholic we sweat holy water. It was uh, <laughs> it, we just had uh, we it, we just it, we were imbued with it there. So it really wasn't present at all. Uh, an anti-Catholic bias. Omaha is very Catholic even to this day. But uh, just reading history, I, I knew of that. So it doesn't surprise me from that standpoint. But I do think that uh, a part of the, uh, the, the real game changer now, though, is that you have uh, prominent political leaders in position of, uh, of, of uh, serving uh, in, in leadership positions who are speaking about and portraying immigrants as thugs, rapists, uh, uh, thieves, people who are here only to harm us. Uh, and I think that that has shaped uh, people's view or can shape people's view. Uh, my hope would be that we would, uh, in our own experience uh, as immigrant people, especially uh, with the church's own experience, uh, put a different face on the issue of immigration. Uh, I think it's very unfortunate that immigrants are derided uh, with that kind of discourse and description. You know, you uh, uh, this obviously has been um, a focus for uh, many in the church, and uh, Steve Bannon, who uh, advises the president, who was, was his uh, political strategist uh, in the campaign and in the White House, um, said something that got quite a bit of attention. He uh, attacked Cardinal Dolan and uh, said that the church was uh, the church was taking the position it was taking on the immigration issue and in favor of what he called illegal aliens uh, in order to or illegal immigrants because you uh, you needed the bodies you needed to uh, enhance uh, Catholic, uh, Catholic followership uh, and, uh, and that this was essentially a marketing uh, decision. Yes. In fact, he even went so far as to say that it, it, we, we wanted to uh, uh, in, increase our collections as a result of that, that it was a monetary, a financial uh, decision, uh, which uh, I think Cardinal Dolan uh, uh, found laughable, as I do. Uh, we we uh, budget quite a bit of money every year uh, in order to assist uh, people who are migrating here, uh, people who are uh, trying to uh, uh, enter into our society and, and uh, be a part of uh, the American dream. 
So it really, um, it, it, it just goes beyond uh, the smell test altogether as far as I'm concerned. We, uh, we help uh, immigrants because uh, we are an immigrant nation and we are an immigrant church. We've always done that. This is nothing new to us. This is not a new venture for us. It's, it's who we are and have been from the very beginning of the history of the Catholic Church in this country. You, you say laughable, but I suspect you weren't laughing when you saw it. Well, uh, yes, I think that at a certain point, you just have to uh, move on to uh, have uh, serious discussions about the important issues of the day rather than taking the bait all the time on these kinds of things. I I think uh, my father always told us as children that a person is as big as the things that bother him, so I'm not going to let this bother me. You, uh, uh, speaking of of your father, he uh, became ill and had to... uh and had to retire, but he didn't really retire from from service. He didn't retire from uh, community life. Uh, tell me about that. Well, at 48, uh, I was in Rome at the time. I was a student, a uh, first-year student in Rome. Uh, he um, uh, contracted uh, Parkinson's disease. He was a rural carrier, uh, so that meant that uh, he really had to retire. He could not carry on his job anymore. His strength wasn't there. He, uh, for a while, wasn't able to walk. Uh, but then with therapy and the proper medication, he regained his strength. And the doctor told him as long as he uh, would exercise and uh, try to keep fit, uh, he could live uh, a normal uh, length of life if he, if he worked at this and took care of himself. And of course, my mother was a big part of that. Well, after a couple of years of being in retirement and my mother uh, not uh, all that thrilled to have him home every day for lunch, <laughs> uh, and he wasn't uh, too thrilled about the honeydews he was given, um, he decided to do a lot of volunteer work with an agency, a group called St. Vincent de Paul Society. Uh, they visit hospitals and they visit people who are shut in their homes to see how they're doing. Well, some of the people he visited um, in their homes were those who were on his rural route. Uh, he knew them. Uh, he had struck up a relationship with them. And he noticed that they weren't getting the proper nutrition. And it was in the 70s when uh, the um, Meals and Wheels program was uh, uh, cresting. And uh, he went to the county board and said, we, uh, we should do this for these people. We can, we can have access to, to these grants. Um, and they um, really dismissed him and said, we didn't want any federal programs in here. Uh, we, you know, it's a bureaucracy, and, and there have to be some sort of uh, commitment on the part of the county. And so he decided that uh, he uh, would run against the man in his own party, and he beat him by just a handful of votes. Uh, and served for for a, a decade or more. He served three terms, yeah, uh, and became the chair of county board. And, and did you? This was politics that grew out of an issue that grew out of service that grew out of a concern. Were politics discussed in your in your home when you were growing up? Not really. Not in the sense of partisan politics. Issues were things that were important. But in terms of, uh, I mean, Dad was able to work with and respect people on both sides of the aisle. Mm -hmm. He was a Democrat, and he had great relationships with people who were Republicans. Uh, There was the congressman in the area, Glenn Cunningham, who served for a long time, was a great friend of Dad's. Uh, and they worked on some things together. Dad got involved in uh, the Eastern Nebraska Office on Aging. He cared about that a lot and uh, worked with elected officials. Um, he just wanted to get things done. He didn't care about the partisan nature of these things. And, uh, in fact, uh, he, he ran against the, the guy in his own – he primaried his, his uh, own representative in the county. I went door to door to do it. Uh, and uh, so it really wasn't – it was always about issues. It wasn't about party. Mm-hmm. You uh – you didn't set down. You didn't set off on this path uh, to be where you are today. Uh, in fact, I, I, I gather there was some discussion in the family about uh, someone, some one of you at least, going into the priesthood. Um, how did it turn out to be you? Well, uh, my my parents always said to us, you know, when you think about your life, don't take off the table uh, serving the church. Uh, in some way, whether that's a teacher or religious or a priest. And it wasn't it wasn't pushed, but it was just out there as, uh, you know, when you think about your life, uh, think about uh, how you're going to serve. And so uh, I um, I got into leadership uh, early on in my, uh, my high school. It was a high school of 1,200 kids, a Catholic school, co-ed. 
and um, uh, was in student government and then ran for student council president and won. So that was uh, the, the whole business of leadership was important for me. I found that uh, it wasn't just serving. I, I, I found I found and, my, and discovered myself and other people that I had a potential for leadership. So that's why I was uh, I was uh, going really going to go off to law school. I had some scholarships uh, uh, in my senior year. But then, uh, you know, people began to talk to me about uh, you should consider priesthood, and I always had that in the back of my head anyway. So I decided to go, and um, uh, my, I had two brothers who were in the seminary at one time. They, they decided to leave. It wasn't for them. But for me, it was a good fit. And so I, I stayed with it, and uh, it's been good. There, there's sacrifice involved with it as well. Did, was there, was there, how, what kind of conversation did you have with yourself at that moment when you decided to move forward? Well, it was uh, the whole business, first of all, of not having your own family, being able to in some way uh, channel uh, those um, aspirations of having family life and children and uh, uh, working in, in, a, in a relationship with a spouse uh, that was very attractive since since I had good modeling of that in my own parents. Uh, so I think it, I, I, I had to make a decision, but it was it's clear to me that uh, 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 the way that I could be a, of service and use my talents and abilities seemed to be calling, be, I, I seemed to be called to something beyond my own having my own family. And, and I've experienced that, I would say, as a pastor of a parish. Uh, the people that I uh, am closest to are those who were part of the first parish that I was assigned to in Alma in 1975. I, um, I have kept close to them, uh, baptized their children, uh, their grandchildren, uh, married their grandchildren sometimes. Uh, and, uh, and, and so the, I, I have had more than enough experiences in life where that bigger family has been experienced by me. You, uh, you also pursued a path of... Uh uh, education and you went mm-hmm. uh, uh, both in Rome and and uh, and and here, um, and so you were preparing for something beyond uh, being a parish priest. Is that fair to say? Yes. Well, uh, it happened this way. I, I love teaching, and in fact, my first assignment, the pastor of the parish said, "If you want to get to know the people in the parish, go to the school." So I was in school almost every day, and I taught in high school as well. I like teaching. So then uh, there was a point in time when I was asked to join the staff uh, at the papal delegation in Washington. I was there for really virtually all the 80s. And I decided that I would continue my education part-time at Catholic U uh, to see whether or not I would be able to come close to uh, earning my doctorate because I wanted to teach at a higher level. Uh, and uh, I was able to do that by 1987. In fact, uh, my term of service at uh, the papal delegation uh, ended after five years, and the nuncio at that time, Cardinal Laghi, later Cardinal Laghi, asked if I was going to stay and finish, and I said, well, no, the, the archbishop wants me to come home. And so he said, well, fine, then I'm going to write him and tell him I want you to for two more years, and you can work here and uh, complete your doctorate. So he wanted me to to finish it. I didn't know this, but I think he had in mind that uh, after a few years of going back in the diocese, he would have me appointed as the uh, rector of the uh, Pontifical Seminary in Columbus, Ohio. So it uh, it was more in his mind of that kind of administrative uh, position rather than teaching that he had in mind. That that stint that you spent uh, in the nunciature that's that 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 was significant experience uh, because of the sensitive nature of that work. You were the secretary uh, of that uh, of the nunciature. What tell me about that and what you learned uh, about the church and how it and how the church runs and relations between the church and, and, and our country? Well, I did learn a lot about the working of how uh, governments talk to each other, and um, uh, it was in 1984 that diplomatic relations were established, and I was there, bet- uh, diplomatic relations between the Holy See and the White House, and I was a part of part of all of that. Um, I, I had a good mentor in, uh, in the nuncio, Cardinal Laghi, uh, who had a wonderful system of every day uh, bringing the whole staff in and going through the mail. Uh, it was called a congresso, a meeting. 
uh, and he wanted everybody to weigh in. And he, it was a teaching. It was almost a seminar about uh, how we should uh, deal with difficult problems. Uh, what's the right way of, uh, of uh, going through the thorny issues that were presented to him, and, and how would he proceed? Uh, so I had seven years of that kind of training of uh, making sure that uh, you bring balance uh, to a discussion, uh, you're firm, and yet at the same time you're not competitive. Uh, it was it was a schooling uh, on how to uh, uh, approach uh, life as it really is, uh, and yet keeping your principles at the same time. Uh, it was a great balance and a wonderful educational experience. You were uh, you were named uh, the Bishop of of Rapid City in 1998 by uh, by Pope John Paul. The second, and while you were there, uh, a couple of issues came up relative to um, the issue of abortion, which is uh, a perennially uh, a, a, a difficult uh, issue. One was that um, uh, a number of your uh, bishops uh, came together to suggest that during the 2004 presidential election that Catholics who um, supported abortion rights should not uh, 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 be allowed to take communion. And you you didn't agree with that. Uh, Why? Well, in fact, uh, I don't think the majority of bishops uh, agreed with that either, because in our document, Faithful Citizenship, when we debated about that, to include that, that was widely rejected. So I think that I I was in the plurality on that issue. And we all believe uh, that uh, those kinds of issues should not be uh, dealt with at the communion rail. Uh, Those are serious issues. Uh, You cannot cannot, uh, in some way uh, uh, prejudge how a person comes to a conclusion without actually sitting down and talking to them about it. Uh, I I do think that folks who advocate for public policy that threatens the life of the unborn – uh, deserve uh, our attention in a special way to have a conversation about. Uh, but I think that uh, to to go ahead and uh, categorically, uh, in a preemptive way, say because you vote a certain way that you cannot receive the Eucharist, uh, is is against our tradition and the way that we pastorally deal with sensitive issues. You know, this issue came up again in, uh, in South Dakota because there was a very sensitive uh, uh, referendum uh, that— um, uh, would have banned uh, abortion in all cases except when the mother's life is in danger. And uh, y- you uh, you took the position uh, that there should be more public dialogue, consistent with what you, uh, you just said. And you said something that was interesting to me, which is that there should be agreement that any discussion of abortion and the law must recognize both the suffering of the unborn children in abortion and the suffering of pregnant, pregnant women in dire circumstances, presumably women who are raped. And uh, tell me, that, that too uh, was a position that probably engendered quite a bit of, of, uh, of discussion. This issue is so uh, fraught and so difficult. Um, how, how do you navigate it? Well, I think for us to keep talking about it and put a human face on the whole issue, the human face of the woman who many times is abandoned by the father or even her family, and she feels very lonely and vulnerable and threatened, but also the human face of the child. Uh, more and more technology is telling us that the viability of a child after uh, so many weeks uh, is almost guaranteed. And so uh, I think that we have to look at, we have to look at as a human society, what are we doing to our own uh, species, uh, the human species, uh, by casually wanting uh, or allowing for uh, the life to be taken. So I, I, I just think that discussion has to continue. Uh, in in a way that's uh, not uh, belligerent or uh, a way that is alienating. But in, in this particular law that we were going through, uh, there were some people who attacked me because I was for a law that had some uh, provisions for exceptions. And uh, I use the argument of John Paul II, namely that there can be a gradualism in the development of law. If you can protect some, you should go ahead and do it. You shouldn't be so uh, categorical and absolute that uh, when it comes to legislation that you're not going to be in favor of improving the situation in a law that may be imperfect from your standpoint. Uh, That was why I was criticized in that particular moment. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Cardinal Supich. 
we're we're back with with Cardinal Supic. Just on this issue, uh, you also, um, when you were in, in Spokane, when you're the bishop there, mm-hmm. you 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 asked, uh, you you took a position against demonstrations outside of uh, of these uh, abortion clinics, and you said. Decisions about abortion are not usually made in front of clinics. They're made at kitchen tables and in living rooms, and they th- frequently involve a sister, daughter, relative, uh, a friend who may have been pressured or abandoned by the man who fathered uh, the child. Um, that, too, seems like a very moderate uh, position. Um, these demonstrations have become a focal point, sometimes of violence. Um, what was your thinking there? Well, um it may have been uh, termed moderate, but I also say humane. Um, uh, I, I, I'm trying to look at the life of the person who's going through these decisions. But in that particular instance, uh, I wasn't against it, the demonstrations or people doing uh, doing these things. What, what I did uh, uh, oppose is that our priest would be uh, in, in the middle of leading this because I wanted our priest to be available pastorally to people who are suffering. And so if people wanted to go and protest, that surely was their right and they could do it. Mm-hmm. But the second part is that sometimes uh, these uh, people would be uh, uh, protesting in such a way that they would have very graphic images of aborted fetuses that, from my standpoint, uh, just alienates people on both sides from being able to have any kind of civil discourse. I just think that it's so inflammatory that it doesn't allow people to sit down and really talk about the issues. So I thought it hurt the pro-life cause to do something like that. Uh, but I wasn't against people demonstrating that surely is their uh, right as a citizen to do, uh, to make their views known that way. But it was, tho- it was those two issues uh, that uh, prompted me to take that action. Colonel, you talk about civil discourse. Uh, our discourse seems very uncivil. Uh, these days, and these issues uh, uh, have um, have divided us in in ways that are, are really, really profound. How do you, how do we as a society overcome that? Well, uh, as I said in a uh, talk that I gave at uh, commemorating the work of Cardinal Bernadine, my predecessor mm-hmm. at Loyola University, uh, I think it's much worse than being divided over issues. I think we're at a stage now where people look upon uh, someone who disagrees with them as the enemy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we we are divided amongst ourselves as people, not just over issues. And that's what's very dangerous. We, we look upon someone else as a, a Democrat, Republican, as the enemy, rather than as uh, citizens uh, who are working for the common good. Uh, that's a new development, I think. We, we've, we're, we're seeing that in, in our country. The, 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 the real kind of patriotism that should unite us uh, is, being, uh, is, uh, is, is, being, is wearing thin. Uh, that fabric is wearing thin in our country. Uh, and so I think that uh, it was Aristotle himself who said that democracies depend on friendships. Uh, we're losing the ability to have friendships in society. Yeah. I, you know, one of the reasons why I do this podcast is because I find it's harder to hate people when you know them, mm-hmm. when you know their story, when you know uh, what what motivates them. But there is great political currency in weaponizing these very uh, volatile issues. So if you are uh, if you're a supporter of abortion rights, you're a murderer. Uh, if you are a, um, a supporter of uh, immigration uh, and an advocate for immigrants, you're uh, you're supporting lawlessness. And um, you know, uh, if you support um, if you support uh, uh, or, or or speak. Uh, well of 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 people gay people um then uh you're violating ha- you 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 are on the cusp of all of this um and how 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 do you push back on all of that well well i do i think that you've got to keep your your moral center about this and realize that we're all human beings that are struggling through life, whether uh, it's gay people or people who have a position uh, about abortion that you disagree with, or even the, the, the death penalty, uh, climate change, 
the Paris Accords. You know, we, we spoke out strongly against the action of uh, the United States government withdrawing. So I think that uh, you you can't personalize it. But there's something else that you mentioned here that triggered a thought in me uh, that we shouldn't overlook here. Uh, there's a lot of money involved in keeping us divided. Uh, people are raising money on these issues and enhancing their own financial situation as a result. Uh, I think money in our political system today uh, is one of the root causes of our divisiveness uh, because you're, you're fueling all of that. We need, we need campaign finance reform, I think, in order to really get at this problem. You know, I was sat uh, the other day with Rick Santorum, who you know uh, was a presidential candidate, former senator from Pennsylvania, um, talked a lot about his faith as informing his view. And he was critical of the Pope and, uh, by extension, uh, you uh, for involving yourselves in issues like the pl- the Parrot climate, uh, Paris Climate Accord is his point of being that uh, it's one thing to say that climate change is a challenge that we have to address it, but it's another thing to involve yourself in specific policy uh, debates about specific proposals because there may be many ways to attack uh, this problem. Well, I I I couldn't uh, uh, disagree more. I think that uh, I think that this is a this is an issue, a life issue. Uh, people say that uh, the right to life uh, of a child is foundational to our teaching on respect for human life, and that's true. But if in fact a foundation of a house. Uh, is such that that house is an environment where there's uh, the rest of the neighborhoods on fire, uh, then it doesn't make any sense to to argue only for the foundation. That's what we're talking about here with regard to uh, the environment and climate control, climate change. Uh, This is threatening the survivability of this planet, and it's going to impact the poorest among us with uh, rising sea levels, uh, people who are living in in very desperate situations, uh, the aridity uh, that comes with uh, climate change where uh, the um, uh, rainforests are being depleted. Um, All of those issues have to do with survivability of people and uh, of this planet that we are given as our common home, as the Pope calls it. So uh, I, th- I think that they, uh, they're they disagreeing not only with Pope Francis, but uh, with scientists, uh, by and large, around the world, who are very clear about uh, the catastrophe that's upon us if we don't address this issue. You mentioned money. When you were at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago in that great uh, dialogue with E.J. Dion, it was the day after... Uh, the, this massacre in Texas, and you were very, very outspoken on that on that issue of guns, as you have been throughout, um, and you connected it with uh, with money uh, and uh, the gun lobby with money. You called for a ban of assault weapons. Um, talk about the gun issue, and you obviously have a lot of exposure to it here, pastoring in uh, in this in this community. Yes, we see it every day here. Um, I don't know if you saw the story here in Chicago, but there was a young man who was 17 years old who came here from Puerto Rico um, uh, to find work because of the uh, devastation with the with the storms, the hurricanes. And uh, his name is Michael. And uh, Michael was walking to work to a car wash. He, he came to live with his grandmother. Uh, an AK-47 carried by someone, opened fire on him, shot him 10 times. I visited him in the hospital. Uh, he, he is recovering. He still has a long way to go. But uh, this, was, this was a random shooting uh, by someone who had a, uh, an automatic weapon in their hands uh, to declare war uh, in the middle of, uh, of, a, of a town, of a city, a part of this, our city, that was otherwise peaceful. Uh, there, there's a lot of money in selling those kinds of guns to people. Uh, and uh, there's no reason why we need that kind of weaponry. Uh, why not have bazookas or uh, surface-to-air missiles in? I mean, if you, if you want to say you can have any weapon you want, uh, why have any restriction like that? Well, it's because of public safety. Uh, we're not at war with each other, and we shouldn't have weapons that declare war on each other. 
And yet the uh, Congress, uh, their response, the only response that we've seen so far, and it hasn't passed the Senate, was a bill in the House that would uh, that would broaden the right to carry uh, concealed weapons. Um, tell me, you, you spoke that day rather passionately about the power of the gun lobby. Talk, talk about that. Well, I, I just you see it. You just mentioned what's going on in the House right now. Huh? That that's not because each one of these members of the House are personally motivated for this. This is not the burning issue in their heart or the reason that they ran for Congress. Huh? There there's a lot of money changing hands here with regard to. Uh, political support that they receive from the gun lobby and uh, ways in which, too, they um, uh, uh, the gun lobby uses rhetoric that makes people afraid. Uh, I think the, the elected officials have to take a – after Sandy Hook, how is it that we, we really can't deal with this when all those children were killed? Uh, that all those lives were snuffed out. Those parents are crying out in anguish for some sort of uh, five years now. Nothing has happened uh, for some sort of justice in the system. Uh, so I, I just think that uh, we're really allowing uh, the people who who have those resources to back political campaigns to control the agenda and. And, and I think that's why we need campaign finance reform. But it's not just the people who uh, who have the money. It's also the fact that uh, there is a very activated uh, group of voters, minority of voters, but an activated group of voters who for whom this is a voting issue. Uh, how do you make it a voting issue for others? Well, I think, you know, leaders uh, who are in the church and society uh, need to step forward and, and continue to do this. We do live in a democracy, and these issues have to be debated. Uh, but uh, I would say that uh, uh, the uh, members of Congress, when they vote for it, if they would poll their people by and large, not just the ones maybe who voted for them, uh, they would not have that kind of support. Um, uh, but I think Well, we know, actually, yeah. on some of these issues that you raise, there's— there's a, quite a consensus. Ninety percent of Americans say they want universal background checks, for right. example. Right. I suspect on the issue of automatic weapons, you'd get a healthy majority as well. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and it's going to take uh, leaders uh, with some political courage to stand up and say, uh, for the good of our country, we need to move in a different direction. Uh, but I think in my voice and the voice of others needs to be out there. Um, that's why I speak out about this, because I'm trying to prompt – uh, not just the people who vote, but leaders uh, to really um, uh, have uh, some political courage uh, in, in moving this issue forward. Uh, it's it's not happening, unfortunately. One of the uh, one of the, you you talk about us living in a democracy, but one of the strains on democracy beyond money is uh, the great polarization of our economy, uh, and uh, you see greater and greater inequality. Um, and and now to test the limits of how f- far you're willing to go in talking about um, sort of public events, we see a tax bill that's being passed this week, and um, the analysis suggests that a lot of that money is going to go to corporations and to uh, wealthier uh, Americans. One of the elements of it uh, would remove this mandate for health care, and that would mean 13 million people, according to analysts, 13 million fewer people getting uh, getting health care. What is from from a from a from a moral perspective? How do you evaluate that? Well, a budget is a moral document uh, because you uh, you demonstrate what your values are by what you're going to fund every. Every home has uh, a budget, and so you decide how you're going to spend your resources in a way that's for the common good of that family. It's the same, too, with a nation. So uh, a budget is a moral document. It's not, it's not neutral. Uh, I, I, as I see from what I read, uh, you know, this, uh, the, this bill is, uh, is fostered or promoted as a way of uh, developing the economy, how people are going to have more money at the top end and they're going to invest in, uh, in companies that are going to produce more jobs and so on. I think that's the narrative that's out there. Uh, 
for me, it's not so much that uh, uh, the, the difficulty, yes, there, there is some unemployment that we have to deal with and better jobs and, uh, and wage scales, but it is the, uh, the income uh, inequality within our country and uh, the income distribution. I don't think that uh, as we look at, a, at a, a bill that does favor uh, folks who are at the high end, that you're going to see that taking place here. I, I think that income inequality uh, is uh, going to continue to gnaw at um, uh, our country. Um, and the voters will, I think, are smart enough to pick that up uh, as as time goes on. You know, I, I'm not I'm not going to debate uh, political th- uh, or economic theories back and forth because I I hear economists on both sides of the uh, of the the fence uh, arguing for or against uh, this present legislation. But uh, I, 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 I will have to see whether or not uh, a bill like this is really going to uh, deal with the basic problem of income inequality uh, in, in our country. It's not just about jobs. It, that's, that's the key issue it's, uh, that I see and, and I think was an issue in the last election. Are you concerned about uh, about the impact on health care? Yes, I am. I think that uh, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm uh, concerned about it not only for the individual people who are going to lose it huh, as a result, but also for our hospital system. We have a lot of Catholic hospitals. Uh, they're non-for-profit, and they take the indigent. And until the, um, until the Affordable Care Act, uh, there was no reimbursement at all. And so uh, they had to deal with it on their bottom line. Uh, and put their hospitals at risk. I think it's going to have a great impact on uh, regional small hospitals in rural areas. Uh, from my reading and talking to people who are at Catholic Health Association, uh, our hospitals are in trouble. Um, and uh, if we now pull this many people out of uh, the insurance plans where there is not going to be any funding or reimbursement, uh, especially for people who are indigent, uh, uh, that's going to – some systems will collapse. We're going to take another break, and we'll be right back with Cardinal Supich. I'd like to ask you about the the, the politics of the church. Yeah. Uh, and politics in the church? I haven't heard that ever. <laughs> <laughs> it, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I'd be qualified to navigate my way through all of that, but yeah. I'm hoping that you can explain sure. it to me. But obviously, uh, you, you said something that I found um, uh, really, really powerful when you were um, when you were uh, at the university, and that was about um, adult spirituality. That the Pope was uh, the Pope believed in adult spirituality. That there were others who wanted to infantilize people and just tell them what to do. And that was what you defined as the central debate within the church. Elaborate on that for me. Well, I. Um I think that uh, this has been growing since the Second Vatican Council, where when John the Twenty Third said he wanted some, uh, he wanted to open the windows to let some fresh air in. That fresh air was moving uh, the church and the members of the church in a direction that, uh, and the and the council documents talked about this, uh, about how we each of us have co-responsibility for the life of the church, life of each other, and life of the world. Um, And so we have to step up. It's not just the the pay, pray, and obey church, uh, where uh, uh, clerics would tell the lay people uh, what to do and then ask people to pay for it, Um, and uh, that they would expect uh, uh, radical obedience uh, right away to everything that was said. And, and it's not in any way to diminish the importance of values and laws and regulations, but there is an embrace of those laws, regulations, and morals uh, that's much stronger if people can self-appropriate it, that if they can own it themselves. Uh, we do that with our children when we raise them. Uh, there is only so much a parent can do in raising a teenager. There's a moment in which there has to be a real trust there for that person to grow, that young person to grow, make their mistakes, but also then uh, take what they have learned and make it their own. I think that we're coming out of the teenage years uh, of the life of the church, where maybe it wasn't um, uh, treating people as infants. Maybe we were treating people like like teenagers that we didn't trust and had to tell what to do all the time, and there wasn't that willingness to let them go uh, off into their their adult years. 
Um, that, we, we need that kind of leadership in the life of the church. Uh, we, if we really want people to, to be a part of the future, uh, we, have to, we have to ask them to share their gifts and their talents, not just their pocketbooks. The issue you, you, you sort of hint at is really the one that, uh, that Steve Bannon was raising, although in, uh, in the context of immigration and the, and the matter we, we, we talked about earlier. But um, there, there has been a, a profound loss of uh, participation in the church, a lot of people walking away from the church. Uh, why? Well, I, I think uh, we're really not um, – I don't think that we have all the answers to why this uh, this is a, a development society that's happened in the last few years. So, for instance, in the last 20 years, we've lost probably about 20 percent of the people who regularly come to Mass. It doesn't mean we've lost them for good, but they're not as frequent. I think they're – first of all, uh, we live in a society today where there are a lot of options on the weekends for people. There weren't in the past. Uh, we have uh, we have all sorts of uh, things that uh, entertain us, sports to, uh, to uh, other kinds of ways in which we're entertained. People travel more. Uh, part of it, too, is uh, uh, when I grew up, uh, our – it was a family event. Um, families now are detached from each other. Uh, in, in our own family, of the nine children, only four remain in Omaha. So people are at different places. And I think when we when you see that uh, the the ways in which people find nourishment maybe aren't in those family systems where worship was always included. There might be another way to do that. So what we have to do is to build a, a, another way in which people identify with worship as a part of their life, not because their family did it or just because they culturally uh, uh, grew up in that environment, but that they're making they're making a positive decision themselves to be uh, to really be uh, uh, disciples who are committed to to the gospel. Uh, and and we haven't done a whole lot on that. We need to do more on that, uh, and that's the adult spirituality the Pope is talking about. Um, how much did the did the ongoing uh, scandal relative to priests uh, and, uh, and 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 molestation of young people and so on? How much did that impact on uh, on, on on the church? It had an enormous impact uh, from a number of standpoints. I think, first of all, uh, it wasn't the fact that there was uh, a cleric who uh, who sinned in this way that, that that was bad enough, but it was the fact that leadership didn't deal with it in a way that trusted people, uh, where uh, they would go to parents and say, "This was done, and this is what we're going to take, a, uh, uh, take how we're going to take care of it, and we're going to be very transparent and open about it." Instead, it was a matter of not seeing the harm that was done uh, to children, um, looking for a way in which uh, the broader community would be protected from the "quote unquote" uh, shame and scandal that was there. Um, and it, it was a whole different environment, though. Uh, it, it, we we know from uh, the uh, John Jay report that there there it was part of society at that time uh, for whether it's police, politicians, priests, uh, people in the law profession or high professions to kind of circle the wagons and not be transparent about these things. Well, we're seeing, of course, all of that falling apart right now with this, uh, uh, these kinds of uh, claims of abuse, of uh, sexual harassment, and so on. Uh, uh, we're just peeling back, I think, the, uh, the, the situation, the scene here, uh, where uh, a lot of people felt that they were a protected group uh, who had special privileges and, and in some way were not accountable. Uh, so I, I, I think what has happened to the church in this regard has been very positive in the sense that uh, we uh, uh, have uh, put light into these situations and uh, maybe sent a signal that society as well can't put up with any uh, uh, kind of hidden, hidden uh, life, uh, double life. Uh, I mean, just to uh, cut, cut to the chase, I mean, there was a sense of, uh, of institutional cover-up. You you, you um, yes. I mean, it, bluntly. Yes. And so that was a, a blow to 
to uh, to people's sense of it connection. Was. It was, but also it was it was it was uh, it was not just a cover up. It was also a tone deafness of how this abuse harmed children and had an impact on them. I think I think even the world psychology had no idea and never talked about this. So the adult world failed to protect children. The adult world failed to see that these these kinds of crimes have a lasting impact on kids. And um, how do you feel the church is doing now? I mean, do you feel comfortable that uh, that there is a, a a new approach and a new policy, and that there is transparency, and that there there that wrongdoing would be dealt with um, forcefully? Well, I can say that that uh, just looking at how many kids, how many parents choose our schools, send their kids to our religious education programs seems to indicate to me that there is a confidence that their children are going to be in safe as are safe in our environments and that's for good reason we have background checks on anybody who has any kind of relationship with a child uh, we uh, we have a code of conduct we do training of people we do training of kids to recognize it and parents so I think that we have and we also measure ourselves by an outside firm that comes in and audits how are how are we following our procedures so I think that that we have we have gone gone a long way and there are many things I I think that uh, the rest of society could could learn from uh, from this very painful moment in our own history. Uh, but uh, for me, the real indice uh, of how we're doing is the fact that parents are bringing their kids to our programs and uh, trusting the church will care for their safety. We talked a little bit about pol- the politics of the church. Uh, you had an election recently and came up on the uh, wrong side of it. Uh, and that was for chairman of the Pro-Life Activities Committee uh, of the bishops. Um, and it was unusual because you were defeated by um, an archbishop, not a cardinal. Um, and a lot of people uh, a lot of people associated that uh, as much with uh, disenchantment among conservative bishops with the Pope as, uh, as, as you. Uh, how did you interpret uh, that, that vote? Well, as I said at the time, uh, unless I have a conversation with the people who voted, I really can't say what motivated them. Uh, maybe some felt sorry that I already had too much on my plate and wanted to spare me this I'm extra sure that was it. Yeah, I'm sure that was it. <laughs> and uh, but I think that uh, I think that you know you, I ran against uh, another archbishop who was involved in the pro life committee for a number of years. I have never been. I was asked to run uh, because, uh, as I said, uh, they needed a cardinal for this. I uh, initially begged off and said, you know, I really have so much going on. But then uh, I did uh, say that I would uh, I would be a part of this. Um, he's a good man who is, um, you know, who is dedicated to uh, the uh, uh, protection of, of human life. Uh, he's, uh, he is somebody I think that the bishops know uh, from that standpoint and recognize as someone who's been involved. So for me, I, I have always said uh, in, in, my, uh, in my, over my many years that I don't ask for anything and I don't refuse anything. If they want me to run for office, I will do it and then let the chips fall where they are. Um, so I, I, I don't know if you can really attribute this to some sort of rebuke of, of the Pope or even me personally uh, until I have a chance to talk to people about it. He, uh, uh, Archbishop Nauman, was the, one of the, those who said that, um, that politicians who, who were uh, supporters of abortion rights should be denied communion. He took mm-hmm. that position about uh, – then Governor Sebelius uh, mm-hmm. in his home state mm-hmm. of uh, of Kansas. So this is a uh, this is a real divide between you. Yes, and 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 I think that uh, as I said earlier, uh, the majority of bishops in our country would not favor that uh, because when it was debated to be a part of a faithful citizenship, our document, it was rejected. That that uh, approach was rejected. So uh, again, I think I I am with the. Uh, uh, the majority of the bishops, and I think this is also the position of the Holy See. Uh, I think it would be very difficult uh, to uh, to move in that direction, and I don't see us doing so. What about the Pope uh, himself? And uh, he, he has had this uh, 
fair to say, galvanic impact uh, uh, around the world. Uh, and, and, and yet there seems to be quite a bit of resistance uh, to him. What, uh, what, how do you see that evolving? And what happens when, uh, when he is gone? Well, first of all, I, I think that uh, the opposition to him within the church or outside is uh, loud but not large. Uh, so I don't panic about that at all. Uh, I think that uh, he he has wide approval, uh, uh, not only among Catholics and Catholic bishops and the cardinals. Uh, I know I know uh, a good number of the cardinals, and I know that uh, he is wide. He would he would win hands down. Uh, he's he's uh, very well loved, and and the rest of the world as well. So I I, I think that um, uh, he's uh, setting in motion a reform of the church and the, particularly the way the church operates. Uh, in a way that makes sense to to a lot of people, um, and he wants to do it, as he said, in a way that's going to make it permanent. Uh, so I I I have no I have no hesitation at all about where we're going in the future. Uh, he just turned eighty one uh, yesterday on Sunday. He's um, he's very vigorous. Uh, so uh, as they say, viva Papa. <laughs> <laughs> we're coming up on a deadline in March in which. The Congress is being called upon to decide what to do about these so-called DACA yeah. kids, these uh, children of undocumented immigrants who uh, submitted their names under an executive order from President Obama, thinking that they would be protected, uh, but now uh, whose status is uncertain because President Trump ended that executive order. Um what does that mean to this community and generally to the immigrant community? Well, I think it would be a, a, a horrible injustice not to fix this problem. Uh, we have uh, 800,000 young people who came here not of their own volition, but uh, by their parents, know no other country uh, and uh, culture. And now to say that they're going to be deported uh, simply because uh, – uh, there is a failure, a resolve to uh, humanly and humanely deal with this issue would be a great tragedy. We're fighting every day for this and trying to get this on the agenda uh, for the House and the Senate to deal with. It has to be fixed. Uh, and if it if it's not by March, we're going to have uh, thousands of young people every week who are going to be liable for deportation, and the and the government has the information on them. That should not be. We we have to rise up and make sure that we. Do not allow this to happen. This problem should be fixed. And um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, 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 there really is no alternative but to fix it right away. Uh, the president uh, is a strong personality. You referenced uh, sort of appeals to division, and that, that seems uh, – it seemed aimed at him. Uh, what kind of moral leadership do you think he's provided? Well, I think every president um, uh, has to look at how they are going to govern um, in a way that's going to bring people together. I think that's a metric that I usually use when I think about uh, the moral impact of a of a of a leader, uh, whether it's in, of a country or or in in a state or local government. How how are they uh, how are they using their influence to govern in such a way that brings people together? Uh, I, I think that he's hearing criticism from his own party that that's not happening. Uh, and, and my hope would be that uh, the people uh, who are with him in the administration would would put that as a priority. Uh, how is it not that you're you're going to uh, win a political battle on a particular issue, but how is the 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 lens through which you govern going to first of all set as priority serving the common good and bringing people together? Uh, I, I think that uh, to the degree that that doesn't happen. Uh, there is a moral failure. Colonel, you uh, just returned from recently from a trip to Puerto Rico uh, as an emissary of the Pope. What did you see down there? Well, I had the impression as I toured the entire island, which I did, uh, visiting all of the bishops and the various dioceses, is that uh, it looked like it was carpet bombed. There wasn't an area that was un left unscathed. Uh, houses, schools, churches, uh, the trees that are so beautifully gracing the the island were down. Uh, power lines. Uh, talking to people as well, where we have 
at least when I was there, half of the island still without electricity and a good third uh, without running water. Um, it looked like a, really a disaster area that could bring much more suffering if we don't have a quick remedy to these, uh, these uh, systemic problems. Uh, the people at the same time are very generous and joyful. Uh, they're not daunted by this. They're, they're not looking for a handout, but a hand up. And I found them to be really engaging and appreciative of the visit uh, that I paid on behalf of the Pope. Do you have the sense that um, enough attention is being paid to the problems down there? I think that the resources are um, available. I think the distribution is an issue. Um, I I proposed uh, two, I think, uh, steps that would be very helpful. The first would be that uh, whatever their game plan is in FEMA uh, and bringing people back up to speed, uh, they need to share that widely. Uh, I think people are kind of like the, uh, sitting on an airplane on the tarmac not knowing when the plane is going to take off for them. I, I've experienced that. Yes, I, we all have. <laughs> so I think that, that kind of game plan of where it's – even if it has to be adjusted in time, I think people are just wondering when, when are they going to get help. Uh, I was in Mayaguez, which te- they told me there that they're the last since they're the furthest away from San Juan to get attention ordinarily, and it was clear that uh, they they had that feeling about the hurricane relief. And so they're taking some uh, initiative on their own part, and we're helping them. But the second thing is that I think the communication could be uh, impacted uh, very positively if they used uh, churches and other organizations that have a large footprint uh, in the in, in the various parts of the island, uh, we can we can get word out to very, to people very quickly, and I think they've relied on um, uh, uh, telecommunications when people don't have electricity. You might as well use smoke signals and drums to get the message out as far as people are concerned. So I think that um, that those two steps could go a long way. Uh, but I do think they need to ramp up uh, the aid. Uh, FEMA, by its own mission, wasn't prepared for uh, dealing with an island, but also dealing with an island that had its own uh, weaknesses in terms of its infrastructure and the bankruptcy. You know, I don't want to uh, assign um, malign motives or even uh, neglect, but you do have this sense that the the, the, sense, the that the the urgency. Uh, as it relates to that hurricane was different than, say, in Houston or in Florida. Uh, Why is that? Well, the people feel that. Uh, You know, uh, they they say, you know, we're American citizens too, and so we should uh, also count. Uh, that that was a widespread feeling that was expressed by a lot of folks as though they were they were abandoned or or uh, left unattended. Um, the reasons for that I don't know. Yes, it, it's true that it's off the mainland and uh, apart from where we are. But I would imagine if a hurricane hit Hawaii, we would be there with resources. Um, they're as much American citizens as the people in Hawaii or on the mainland. I just want to ask you two other quick things while you're here. We talked about the tax bill the other day. One thing we didn't talk about was the impact on charitable giving. How how much are you how concerned are you about charitable giving under the provisions of this new tax law? Well, the Joint Tax Commission uh, estimated that charitable giving would drop by $13 billion as a result of this bill. That was put in the statement today issued by our bishops' conference. In addition to that, however, uh, by getting rid of the personal exemption, uh, that's going to have an impact on families, middle-class families. We also know that uh, from the Joint Tax Commission, we're, uh, es- they're estimating that the uh, burden on the poor and the middle class will rise in time uh, with this tax legislation. Uh, so uh, there are a lot of uh, problems with this bill. Um, yes, the standard deduction has been doubled. That's helpful. Uh, but we also have increased uh, the debt significantly, and there is a fear expressed by our bishops conference that that is going to be made up uh, in entitlement cuts or some other way that's that would affect those who are weakest in society. So the bishops conference has uh, has severely criticized uh, this legislation and uh, made a case to the president uh, to take into consideration those concerns before signing the bill. Uh, finally, Cardinal Law passed away 
in the last uh, in the last days. Uh, how how will history view him, and and how should the church view him? Well, I think uh, we see in all of the obits that have been issued in statements uh, the uh, the time that he served when uh, church leaders. Uh, neglected to protect children uh, will be, I think, uh, always at the top of his legacy. Uh, he'll be remembered for that, uh, and I and I think that that's important to recognize that it was a pivotal moment uh, in not only Boston but the United States uh, when all of that came uh, came and surfaced. In fact, uh, I I have always felt that that kind of transparency, although it's very painful is very much needed. It allows victims to come forward and receive healing. So I, I've always uh, championed uh, people to to have that uh, openness and transparency. At the same time, I have to recognize, too, that uh, he was a man who was motivated to enter the priesthood to help the poor. He uh, worked uh, when he was in Springfield, Cape Girardeau, uh, and also a member of the Bishop's Conference to uh, bring people together on an ecumenical basis. Uh, he surely was uh, uh, a very strong force against racism and racial bigotry. Um, he looked for ways, too, in which we could normalize uh, relations with Cuba and lift the embargo. Uh, he had, uh, I think, an approach to international issues that uh, was very refreshing and was was important at his time. So really, it is a, uh, it's a tragedy that a man who had uh, so many good things to offer uh, suffered from uh, this blind spot, as he called it, in his later life. Uh, that uh, brought about uh, tremendous uh, hurt and injury uh, to victims. And you, you, you talk about transparency. The, this was sort of um, documented in the movie Spotlight and the role the Boston Globe played in, uh, in really shining a bright light uh, on this. It speaks to the importance of a, of a free media in our society. It also speaks, I think, to the importance of the media to also be true to itself. There was a moment in the movie Spotlight in which they had to admit at the Boston Globe that they passed on this story early on and didn't uh, dig down deep and allow themselves in some way to uh, be uh, be compromised in uh, telling this story when, in fact, they had a lot of the facts. So it, it, it's important, I think, for the media not only to be free, but also to be responsible in following these stories as soon as they find out about them. Indeed. Cardinal, good to be with good. you. Good to be with you. Merry thanks. Christmas. Happy Merry Christmas. holidays and uh, all, all good things in the new year. David, thanks. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.